0: You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I'm honored to be joined by pastor and author Brian Zond. Brian's book, When Everything's on Fire, has recently released, and I'm really excited to bring our conversation to you today. There was a lot of really good stuff in this book, things that absolutely spoke to my own experience as a follower of Jesus, as a parent, and as a pastor. So I hope that it is also a blessing, a challenge, and an encouragement to you now before we dig in to that conversation i just want to tell you about a couple things we have going on here at Rua Space. first we have recently begun spiritual direction which is one-on-one conversations where we explore your story talk about your spiritual practices dig into god's movement and voice in your life so whether you are new to the journey or have been walking on it for a long time This is a space to explore where you can go deeper. And I'd love to set up a free chat. We can talk on the phone. We can talk over Zoom to talk about if spiritual direction would be right for you. So you can find a link to set that up in the description below. Friends, we also have our Patreon page. This is a space where you can help support the ministry for just a few dollars a month while also gaining access to some really cool exclusive content, including our series on Revelation, going through Psalms, 23 on advent and prayer practices guided meditations and prayers and much more so you can also check that out at the link below so friends thank you so much for being with us here today i hope that you are blessed challenged and encouraged by my conversation with brian zond brian welcome to the rua space podcast what an honor to get to spend a few minutes with you here today
1: Well, thank you, Phil. It's my pleasure to be with you.
0: I I really appreciate this new book that you just released, When Everything's on Fire, Faith Formed from the Ashes, because it really put words to a lot of my experience as a pastor, my own experience sort of walking through uh, undergraduate and graduate school. Um, It it really sort of helped explain a little of what I had experienced. So I'm excited for you to get to share a little of that with our audience today. And of course, hopefully they'll go and buy the whole book because we can only begin to scratch the surface. But As a means to begin, can you sort of share a little bit of the context, maybe the landscape of faith in America today Mm. uh, that led to you writing this book?
1: Yeah, and then an hour later, we'll be done.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I hear you on that.
1: (laughs) Okay, well, let me me decide where to start here and keep this as brief as possible. Uh, I have been the pastor of a single congregation now for 40 years. Uh, we just celebrated our 40th anniversary, and I started when I was 22, so I'm 62, one church.
0: That's awesome. Uh,
1: beginning in about 2004, I went on my own and then led our church, as many as would, uh, on a very significant theological shift, renovation, transition, I would not have called it deconstruction for a couple of reasons. One, I already knew what the term meant from Jacques Derrida and deconstruction theory and philosophy, and it wasn't that. And besides that, uh, deconstruction sounds too much like destruction. And thirdly, it wasn't in vogue yet. Uh, I I ultimately like talking about it as my water to wine journey. So anyway, I have my own experience of in midlife having to rethink how we understand the Christian faith and making critical adjustments. Okay, so that lurks in the background. Uh, In recent years, my wife and I have discovered that our souls benefit enormously, almost to the degree that I can't describe it, when we walk pilgrimages, but especially the Camino de Santiago. This is the very famous one. This is a medieval pilgrim route that was maybe at its apex 800 years ago. It's probably 1,200 years old, but 800 years ago, uh, half a million people a year were on this road. And it's had a resurgence in recent years. And we walked it, well, it begins in Saint-Jean-Pied-de-Port, France, crosses the Pyrenees, and then 500 miles later, yes, it's a 500-mile walk, you arrive in Santiago de Compostela. We'd done it in 2016. It basically healed our souls. It's a long story, but it's a beautiful story. We were doing this again in 2019, September, October of 2019. Now, Phil, part of walking the Camino is it's like a time machine because you can sense an earlier epoch because you're walking past these churches, some of which are a 1,000 years old, and the Camino by its very nature, Is dotted every, every, really every, you know, four, five, six, seven miles, you'll find some sort of church or shrine or monastery or convent. And so you're aware of an earlier epoch where faith was assisted by the wider culture. Now, I don't want to be overly romantic about the medieval period. I know it was also fraught with superstition and clerical abuses and things like that. I get that. But I also understood that late modernity is at all is in no way a friend to the sustaining of Christian faith. And so I I was when you walk the Camino, you know, your life is reduced to the blessed simplicity of just walking. You know, you get up in the morning, And you walk 12 to 15 miles ever westward, carrying what you need on your back. It's as simple as that. And so there's a lot of time to think, to slip into a contemplative mode. And I thought, you know, a lot of people are finding it difficult to hold on to the faith they grew up in, received as children, inherited in some way or another. And we're seeing people leave because they can't find a way to stay within the faith. And I thought, if I could walk with these people, for a day or two on the Camino, and we could have you know six, seven, ten, twelve hours of conversation. What might that conversation be like? Well, 200 miles, two weeks into this long pilgrim walk, we arrived at Castro Haris, a lovely hilltop village in northern Spain. And I sat outside of our albergue on a terrace, and I and I wrote at the top of a piece of paper when everything's on fire. What can we do when everything's on fire? And I, I, I came up with about 12 things I wanted to address and talk about, and that became the outline for the book that I really didn't start writing. This would have been in October of 2019. I didn't start writing it until January of 2020, I had already given it the title when everything's on fire, and then <laughs> everything was on fire. And so that's that's the background. I don't know if I really addressed what you're getting at, but at least that's that's the inception or the conception of the church on the Camino with a pastor's heart wanting to help people hold on to faith who feel like it may be in jeopardy.
0: Yeah, and there's of course many reasons. People may feel like it's in jeopardy. And you mentioned modernity and such sort of this changing in the world toward everything being Mm -hmm. quote unquote, objective (laughs) truth. I think therefore I am our mind sort of being the main route, but behind that seems to be maybe the issue. And maybe, maybe this is our fault as a Western church, that when doubts or questions creep in, it's one or the other, I can either answer them all one way, as I've always been taught, or I walk away from Jesus completely. And that seems to me, at least in the book, you seem to be saying that's that's a false dichotomy often, if it's science versus faith, or the Bible being interpreted this way versus that way, that maybe there's something else we can do rather than blow it up completely, or say it must all be that exact way.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's exactly the case. What's happened with modernity begins to emerge on the scene in the 17th century with the enlightenment, with Rene Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I think, therefore I am. Through a series of thought events, uh, empiricism becomes dominant in how we think about the world, empiricism meaning that the assumption that all that can be known about the phenomenon of being can be ascertained and only ascertained through the five physical senses that there's no room for any other kind of knowing. Uh, I have no problem with science at all, none, zero. I don't know of any peer-reviewed scientific theory that is any threat to my Christian faith. I do resist what we would call scientism, which is the assumption that all that can be known about the phenomenon of being can be known through empirical logical positivism-style science. Uh, and what's interesting is you will have a kind of Christian, and there's millions of them, who more or less actually agree with that, and then they set out using the terms already dictated by empiricism to, quote, prove the Bible mm-hmm. in some way. Using, using the scientific method, they're going to prove the Bible. It's a fool's errand. Uh, we, we don't need to do that. So there is a whole other way of approaching the phenomenon of being that leaves all, I mean, let science say everything it has to say about this wonderful experience that is life. Amen. I'm there for it. But there is the end of the road of that. And then there is the possibility of spirit and heart and revelation. And that has always been the foundation for Christian faith until really in modern times, and there began to be a shift. And so, modernity does present unique challenges. And and when I, as I address this thing, I don't want anybody to hear me trying to cast this in culture war terms. I think that's the worst approach. I mean, I have no, I have no interest in that at all. Zero. Um, I'm seeing all of a sudden now, it's quite recent. you're, You're seeing kind of a backlash among a certain kind of Christian leader or pastor who they're, they're, response to the phenomenon of people having to, we'll use the word, deconstruct faith, rethink faith, possibly lose faith, is to simply maybe be angry, mock, shun, shame. And I just think that's ridiculous. Uh, Being angry with modern people for losing their faith is a bit like being angry at medieval people for dying of the plague. I mean, something has happened that has come of age in late modernity that has made faith, um, a, a challenge. And so that's why I write the book. I want to help people because, because there are those that have gone before. I, I particularly rely upon Soren Kierkegaard and Fyodor Dostoevsky to be guides and wise sages to help us through that. I love, I love the quote from Dostoevsky who says, it is not as a child that I believe in and confess Christ my hosanna has passed through an enormous furnace of doubt. <laughs> mm. So doubt, does not, doubt is not as big an enemy to faith as people might think. Yeah. Uh, in fact, the very nature of faith means that it can and must, in fact, coexist with doubt. If, if doubt is impossible, then it's not faith, it's something else. Yeah. And yeah. so faith is a phenomenon that is held within the potentiality of doubt. And so if if we say all doubt must be removed and we must exist in this realm of certitude, hmm, that's when doubt actually can grow into a monster and become such a potent challenge to faith that it might overthrow faith.
0: Yeah, well, because then our beliefs about the world being 10,000 years old or this Bible passage must be read in that way, we we marry them together. And it's like, if one now, and, and, I, and, I, and I've seen this as a pastor, and it's it's scary. and I And, and I'm sure that I'm hoping I avoid some of these mistakes myself as a parent, but teaching our children, you cannot believe that and be a Christian. Right. Like to be a Christian is to have that belief, which then forces people when they're older or experience something new to say, well, I was taught I can't be with science or I can't do that and be a follower of Jesus. So rather than seeing and you have this beautiful image in the book of sort of our theological house that Jesus is in it, but our beliefs that surround Jesus, they aren't Jesus, they're just sort of the ways we understand it. And to question those things isn't to throw out Jesus. It's to say, right. hey, I could have been wrong. And to me, that's the ultimate uh, acknowledgement of humility that, hey, I don't have all the answers. So doubting isn't to throw out Jesus. Doubting is to say, maybe I don't have the full picture yet.
1: Yeah. Um, one of the phenomenons of fundamentalism of various stripes, some are more severe, some are more mild, but they tend to want to tie everything together that pertains to Christian faith in a very tight bundle of certitude so that nothing is negotiable. Well, when nothing is negotiable, you run the risk of everything being lost. I mean, if you raise Timmy in the the way that, that he has to believe that the earth is 6,000 years old, that 6,000 years ago, dinosaurs were wandering around, that he has to believe that, or he cannot be a Christian. Well, you run the risk of of creating an atheist is what you're doing here. Um, Our Christian faith is centered on Christ alone. And so we confess Christ and then everything else becomes negotiable. And so this this is where I draw the analogy of a theological house. as we encounter christ we inevitably construct or inherit receive a theological house this is this is the palace in the mind for christ the king it's not christ but it's the the whole wide swath of theological idea and opinion and assumption that we have that in some way relates to the divine well um what happened, and your, and your theological house is not a tiny little thing. It's not just like a one-room bungalow. It's a sprawling mansion, a palace, really, of dozens of rooms. My own experience is that, well, beginning in 2000 and maybe more earnestly in 2004, I began to realize that there was just a garish conflict between the beauty of Christ that I truly believed and certain doctrines that I had picked up along the way and was more or less assumed that I needed to hold to. But I reached the point where much of this was no longer tenable. And to stick with the metaphor, I still believed in Christ. That really wasn't the crisis. It was that I just felt like Christ deserved a better Christianity than I knew. And so I was able to hold on to Christ, but then look at my theological house, which I found an embarrassment. And said, okay, some of this is going to have to be remodeled. And if you've ever remodeled a house while living in it, you know, it's inconvenient. It's difficult. It's going to be messy. It's going to take you longer than you think. It's going to cost more than you think. And so that was my experience, though. And so some rooms in my theological house, I would say were largely untouched. Maybe we, you know, put a coat of paint on or added a little, you know, decor or something like that. Other there was a whole wing of my theological house called eschatology that I had just, you know, I come from the Jesus movement. I just inherited their dispensationalism and that pretty much wasn't just renovated. Let's say we actually took that whole wing right down to the foundation and it had to be, so you could maybe say there was some deconstruction going on there, but you can deconstruct all kinds of doctrines all kinds of ways of talking about God revealing Christ and still hold on to Jesus at the center because there is a distinction between Christ and your theological house. And if you can make that critical distinction, which fundamentalists find hard, but if you make that critical distinction, you can hold on to Christ while everything else is being negotiated, perhaps renovated, perhaps some of it deconstructed, but you hold on to Christ and then you can arrive at a place where, look, the, the apparatus of belief has been renovated and remodeled and is now becoming worthy of the one who is the true object of my faith, Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, I appreciate that that's sort of the foundation and the center the whole way through. Um because at one point I think you talked about how you could say, hey, this is a low view of scripture. And and you sort of said, but I have a high view of Christ. And yeah. I, I really appreciate that because This is about Christ being at the center. The Bible, you say, is not actually our foundation. It's One of the images you give at one point is it's like the soil, but the tree is, is growing out from there. And I have to say, you know, the most significant times of growth where I think I, in my experience, grew closer in my relationship with Christ, in noticing the movement of the Holy Spirit, were after these tumultuous times of difficult questions that had been asked that made me rethink as you say, the surrounding, but the core was at the center, and so with this idea of Jesus being the center, you go into the Apostle Paul, and here at Ruach Space, you know we're all about the, from this Hebrew word Ruach, right, making space for breath, for spirit, connecting to Christ. So. Um, this journey of connecting uh, deeper through Christ, can you talk a little bit about Christ as that foundation, what that means if it's not Bible, if it's not, if it's not science, but it's this revelation?
1: Yeah, um, where to start? There's a lot going on <laughs> yeah. there. Uh, well, you made some allusion. There's a, cu- there's a couple of chapters you're alluding to, both the chapter No Other Foundation and the chapter The Dark Night of Unknowing. I- I'll start with The Dark Night of Unknowing. Um, and I, I, the chapter begins with Abraham. I'm going to skip over that part and get to get Saul of Tarsus. You know, there's an assumption that kind of just happens to us as we first begin to be serious about being Christians, that spiritual growth is just really more or less a matter of adding more and more, whatever. Experience, information, knowledge, God facts. <laughs> we just add and add and add and add and add. Uh, That's maybe true early on, but there reaches a point where actually growth is going to become, is going to come through unlearning some things, letting go of some things, some things, some negation. It's going to become apophatic. Um, So there is, and, and the best way I can communicate it just to remind people of the Saul of Tarsus story. So who is Saul of Tarsus? Well, he's a young zealous Pharisee who is a Bible scholar. He knows his Bible front and back. He is not plagued with doubts. He's very settled in his certitude. He knows he's right. This is why he's cruel, because he's convinced he's right. And he has a superior education in the Torah from Gamaliel and others. And he becomes aware of this new sect that believes that a, a, a prophet from Galilee by the name of Yahshua who was crucified by the Romans is somehow the true Messiah raised from the dead. Well, he knows this cannot be because he can show you the Bible verse that says, whoever is hung on a tree is cursed by God. Therefore, case closed. If you're hung on a tree, you're cursed by God. You can't be the Messiah and be cursed by God. So he just knows. So, so he persecutes. And he arrests and he throws in prison and presides over even executions and then gets arrest warrants travel all the way up to Damascus to find if in the synagogues there are any that belong to the way, confessing that a crucified Jew named Jesus could be the Messiah. And he's on his way there. And it's a long walk. I know something about long walks. And maybe some things begin to connect. Maybe a fuse is lit. Maybe he begins to wonder about Isaiah 53 and some other passages. Psalm 22 they pierced my hands, and they're thinking he's thinking David's hands were never pierced. Let's go. But anyway, at some point as he nears the city, there is this glorious appearance of light that is like the brightness of the sun. And a voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Well, I think Saul understands that what he's encountering is the same thing that Ezekiel encountered at the river Kebar, Isaiah in the temple in the year King Uzziah died. This is the glory of Yahweh. And so he says, who are you, Lord? Kyrios, but this is the word that an observant Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jew will use to refer to Hashem, God. Who are you, Lord? And the reply is, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So the question is, who are you, Lord, Kyrios? Who are you, Adonai? I am Jesus. Well, and then he goes blind, all right? He's seen the light, a flash of light, a flash of revelation, and I don't see anything. And so um, imagine how, how Saul was on his way to Damascus, striding with his mean step just absolutely certain. And all of the sudden, he finds out that Jesus is Lord. And now, he, in one sense, for a time, loses everything. He doesn't know anything else. And now, he shuffles along with groping his way, asking someone to take him by the hand and lead him, because he can't see anything. And... So for three days and three nights, he he doesn't see anything, and he doesn't eat or drink. I don't think he's fasting. I think he's just too stunned <laughs> to eat or drink. And uh, finally, Ananias comes, and when he calls him Brother Saul, he understands that the purposes of God cannot be accomplished through violence, but only through love. And that's when the scales fall from his eyes. Um, but but he, you, you see there was a moment when Saul had all having all of this bible knowledge it's all stripped away down to knowing one thing what does he know he knows jesus as lord and that's it and then that it's really kind of the ultimate deconstruction and that is it was deconstruction he's down to one thing and then he begins to take the pieces that he'd had since childhood and assemble them again, but kind of in a new way, or maybe in a radically new way now. Mm-hmm. With, at the center, though, is the revelation. And when I say revelation, you have to understand that Christians have always confessed, it's only been challenged maybe in modernity, that the reason that we are able to say that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, is because the Spirit of God takes the initiative and reveals that to us. Not through clever apologetics and argument and syllogisms, but a direct revelation given to not the intellect, but to the heart. Mm. And this is, you know, who do people say that I am? Near Caesarea Philippi, Jesus says to his disciples, well, wow, there's lots of opinion. Who do you say that I am? Simon says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, oh, you are blessed. You didn't get this from flesh and blood. My father has revealed this to you, and this is going to change you. And I'm going to change your name, Simon, son of Jonah, Simon, Simon, Jonathan, I'm going to change your name to Petros, Peter, rock, Rocky. You're going to be called Rocky. And upon this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the gates of death. Not even that will be able to stop this. And so the foundation we have is the revelation given to us that Jesus is the Christ. It's a revelation given to the heart not to the intellect. And that's a critical distinction. What's happened in modernity is that we have been kicked up inside our heads. And we have been told that if it's not empirically verifiably, if it's not empirically verifiable, that it is somehow a lesser way of knowing. This is not true. It's simply a different way of knowing. Um, This is why Blaise Pascal, the contemporary and intellectual equal of René Descartes, and Descartes was himself a believer, but Blaise Pascal has to correct him. And Blaise Pascal is certainly no opponent to rational thought. He's one of the greatest mathematical minds in all of history. I mean, he is a very reasoned, rational thinker, but he adds this, the heart has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Actually, most people, unless, they, unless they've made some kind of formal commitment to atheism and logical positivism and scientism and materialism, already know this and accept it. What we would need to do, I think, as pastors is encourage people that they don't have to be ashamed of the of the confession that something has been revealed to their spirit or revealed to their heart or revealed to them about God by God. This in fact is the foundation of Christian faith and always has been.
0: Yeah. Well, and I like then too, when, when the faith is rooted on Jesus alone, it can't crumble like all the right. other things not meant to sort of hold that weight. And so this is based then on an experience and. One of the disservices I feel like has been done, and this isn't every church, so this is probably way too wide of a brush, but on the whole, in my experience, we've done really well as a body teaching people at least the importance of studying the Bible, learning some theology, those types of things. But in my experience, we haven't prepared people all that well for having an experience of the ascended Christ, of how to make space to experience it. And I appreciate in your book, you know, you said that the end is not searching for some sort of mystical experience, as if by some technique, we can like make it happen. But how would you encourage someone to say, how do I become more open to an experience like in a dream, or in a vision, or meditation, or prayer, Do you have practices? Do you have sort of um, perspective shifts? How might you invite someone to make the shift toward experience?
1: Yeah, um, I don't talk about it too much directly in the book. I allude to it. I touch on some things. I don't talk about it a whole lot. What we're talking about here is learning how to pray and how to pray well. this is why I teach people this. I teach them in my prayer schools that that since the pandemic, I finally got convinced to do some online. I'd always said I wouldn't do them online, but you know things change. <laughs> so I've done like, I think eighty-seven of them now. These are three ninety-minute sessions, so they're you know that's a, a big time commitment. That I've done eighty-seven of them. Yeah. Um. It's interesting that that uh, what's happened again, in modernity, especially in the more evangelical Protestant world, we somewhere along the way thought that the only way to pray was to simply do make up our own prayers, or as we say it more colloquially, just talk to God. And so that's pretty much been how we teach people to pray. Just talk to God. Well, I'm going to tell you, it's not enough. And okay. we need a formative structure of prayer that maybe counterintuitively, the structure actually opens us up to have more experience with God. I can say, after 40 years of pastoring, that the most important thing I do as a pastor is teach people how to pray. Hmm. And prayer is the place where, yes, it's the place where we directly encounter God, but it's also the place where the spiritual practices and habits Form us in such a way that periodically we are positioned to have what I would call a mystical experience with God. You can't go pursue it directly. Say, so, okay, I'll put it on my calendar, I'll put it in my Google calendar that I'm gonna have a mystical experience with God next Tuesday at 2:30 in the afternoon. It doesn't work that way. Uh, but there is a certain level of formation that can be attained that opens you up to these things. It, it might, this is a, this is a this is kind of a lame illustration because it harkens to days gone by. But before everything was digital, you know, you would have a radio that you would have to tune in. Right, it's an analog radio, and you could you could be like sort of onto the frequency, but it's all garbled and fuzzy, and then you just you f- fiddle around with the dial until the okay, I got it, I'm locked in. Uh, these are the kinds of practices in prayer we can lock better into the frequency. By which the spirit is communicating to us. Now, I fully understand that here on this podcast, just talking to you right now, in one sense, what I'm doing, if I'm not careful, is just frustrating people because I'm speaking about something, and then you say, Well, teach us how to do it. I do this, I can't do it right in, in, in at this moment here and now.
0: Well, listen um, to one of our we have we have tons of episodes all about that too. So people can find it here or with you. There's yeah. lots of it out there.
1: Yeah. And that's where I think I I do. I'm completely serious. I think this is sort of the forgotten vocation of the pastor that needs to be recovered, teaching people how to pray and how to be spiritually formed in such a way as to encounter the experience of God. This is why I make such a big deal about the word mystic in the book, which I understand is a bit of a dangerous word that people can mishear it. Um, the the thing is though, I couldn't find a less dangerous word. Every other word also has its problems. And so by by a mystic, by a Christian mystic, we simply mean someone who seeks and at some level attains an experience within the mystery of God, which by the way, the Bible sets forth as entirely normative, that part of being human is that we are those that are created to be able to experience God, as surely as birds are designed to fly and fish to swim, humans are designed to experience God. That's what we mean by a by mystical. It was Karl Rahner, who in 1971, German Catholic theologian philosopher, said, "The Christian of the future will be a mystic, or they will cease to be anything at all." Mm-hmm. I think that was a very prescient statement. Quite nearly prophetic. And what what Rahner called the future 50 years ago in 1971 is what we today call today. We've arrived at that moment where, for many, maybe for most, Christian faith will not be sustained by allegiance to a tradition or by an intellectual argument. It's going to be sustained by their own experience with God and the the pastoral vocation is to help people be formed in such a way as such experiences are not only possible, but normal.
0: Yeah, well, I think that draws together sort of, again, you know, we've only begun to scratch the surface of the book, but to me, that draws it together. When When we put the central component on Christ, on an experience of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Yes. and all the other ideas could be on fire it could be on fire around you and as you said some of that might need to be burned down right. some of it maybe, as you talk about and of course we don't have time to go into all that like moses in the burning bush it's not destroyed it's actually god inviting us further into something into a realization of realizing god is all around us so i think putting that at the center is that and maybe we don't need to worry about the flames as much then
1: Yeah, exactly, and of course, of course, you know, I do a lot of these podcasts, and the frustrating thing, Phil, and you'll understand this, is you talk for an hour, and people think, okay, that's what the book's about, (laughs) and it's like, you know, I write the book because it's the only way I can communicate what I want to say. If I could do it in an hour-long talk, I would do it. Yeah, but it's I can't, and so it 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 took a book-length treatment, but you're right. Everything is on fire, but also everything's on fire. Yeah. I mean, yeah. everything's on fire. There, there's, there's a lot that is wrong and that is damaging and that is threatening and that is imperiling, just like the fire that engulfed Notre Dame Cathedral on March 15, 2019. Uh, that's re- or April, April, April 15, 2019, during Holy Week. I remember that so vividly. It just seemed like an almost too perfect metaphor for where we are. On the other hand, there is another kind of fire. And it's the fire that Moses at last notices in the burning bush and becomes aware of. And there is a place, really, where we can begin to perceive, you know what? Every bush, every tree, every blade of grass, the stars themselves are ablaze with the glory of God. This is not sentimental, romantic talk. This is about having your spiritual eyes opened and understanding the world in which we really do live. And if you can arrive at that point, it does not negate the challenges and the realities that threaten us that are current and contemporary, but it makes them bearable. And you understand that it's not telling that the scandals and and the failures and the critiques justly deserved that come upon the church uh, are not telling the whole story about what it means to believe in Jesus Christ.
0: Yeah, well, I think keep seeking and you'll find. Right? That's you right. know, I mean, we we didn't have time to get into all the stories about Mary and losing Jesus, and I think those are are beautiful, wonderful invitations. But it seems like keep seeking. God is here. God is yeah. available. God is speaking. God is present, and. We're asking for the eyes to see and the ears to hear. So one thing I would be remiss if I didn't go into, and I think, again, this could be a whole nother hour-long podcast, but I... Began to notice your affinity for Bob Dylan, and so I would love oh, to just oh, yes, yeah, yeah. I, you know, it, it, at first I thought I had found something. Then I'm like, oh my goodness, no, Bob Dylan is everywhere in 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 well, your things. Tell, sometimes tell
1: acknowledged, and sometimes I just lift a line here and there. And those that know know.
0: So tell me what what captured you about Bob Dylan.
1: Well, here's the story. Um, I was 15 years old. is is right at about the same time that I. Also came to faith in Jesus, so they they happened at the same time. And at this time, I was I, I'm, I'm just I'm a heavy rocker guy. I'm a Zeppelin guy. I, you know, I still love Zeppelin, but but all the music I liked at that time was you know heavy. It's Led Zeppelin, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple, that sort of thing. And my clock radio goes off. This is 1975. Click, and I heard for the first time. Early one morning, the sun was shining. I was laying in bed, wondering if she changed at all, if her hair was still red. And I sat there kind of in the half awake, half still asleep state. And I heard these mesmerizing lyrics that just tripped off the tongue. And it seemed like this guy was telling this crazy story that you could kind of understand, but that every line rhymed so effortlessly. Mm. And it was Dylan that really first alerted me to the possibilities of language and gave me a love for beautiful language and creative language, artistic language, poetic language. And so from that moment, 1975 until now, uh, Bob Dylan has provided the soundtrack for my life. And it's more than just, okay, I like his music because I love music. I like lots of music. I could go on and on and on about the music I like. Dylan occupies a different category it's bigger than that. It's a vocabulary that is given to me that helps me understand and express my place in this world. So I don't want to say Bob Dylan's like a tool, because that sounds, I'm not saying that right, but he has given, his his language has given me a way to express and understand, and it just it has shown me a certain way of poetically and artistically thinking about everything, however, however you want to communicate. So I do work. I mean, this is a bit self-referential here, and maybe I'm, I don't know if it's even appropriate, but I'll tell you one of the things that I, when I write my books, uh, I'm sitting here at my writing desk. Uh, so when I get done for, for a day's worth of writing, the first thing I do is I take my laptop to Perry, my wife. And for the next hour or so, we work on it. And that she reads it out loud to me, and I'm listening to it. How does it sound? Not just how does it read. How does it sound? And we work together. She's making suggestions and all that. But what's really going on there is how does it sound? And so that's why I, the, the, there was a little there's a little hiccup in in releasing the book. It's a long story. I won't go into it. But the audiobook doesn't come out until February 8th but and and I'm I've done some audiobooks it's hard for me I, I really didn't have the time to do this one so a guy named I don't know if anybody knows Levi the poet Levi McAllister but he goes by Levi the poet and he's awesome. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to hear my own book read by mm-hmm. Levi the poet <laughs> I will I will totally listen to my own book just to hear Levi the poet did. yeah anyway that nice. takes us from Bob Dylan to Levi the poet
0: yeah. No, I, I love it, and I appreciate knowing, you know, where where people find some inspiration and some insight. And to me, again, God's speaking everywhere, right? So to me, right. if it's true, it has something to offer. So I hadn't listened to much Bob Dylan before, but as I was preparing for this interview, I took your playlist and I was listening to the Bob
1: Dylan songs and uh, looking up the lyrics and all There's happened. a, there's a there. reason why they gave him a Nobel Prize. Okay, yeah, yeah. You, you can throw out Grammys all day long, and he's got a closet full of them. But no, he got a Nobel Prize for literature.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, I see. I didn't even know. I didn't know that yeah. until I started researching yeah. and thanks to you. So I'll have to listen to more Bob Dylan music and see see how the spirit moves through the beauty of that poetry. Well, Brian, what might be a final word of encouragement or challenge for people walking on this faith journey in these times?
1: I would say that even though the challenges we face at the moment seem particularly intense, and I would agree that they are, they are not unique, that I find hope in the antiquity of the church, that we have a 2,000-year history, and these things have been faced before, and if we will open ourselves up to the wisdom and the treasury of the whole church, because yes, I know that the church as an institution, it's easy to critique, but it's also something of a repository for great treasures, and you said it just a moment ago, seek and you will find, there are voices that have been vetted and tested by time that can address the particular problems we are facing, and if we listen to them, they can help carry us through, and so um, I think we're going to enter a period where the church is going to be chastened and humbled, but also Refined, and we'll find that there is resilience there because Christ has made His promise concerning that. So hold on to Jesus. Let everything else be negotiable, and let the Holy Spirit help you through this season.
0: Amen to that. You know, I'm I, I lied a minute ago. I'm actually going to ask one more question now. Okay. <laughs> Who are some of those tested voices you might recommend people start off with going oh, into? I know there's too many to list, but maybe a
1: few. To you know, there, there's too many in the sense that. Do you mean contemporary? Do you mean from the Orthodox or Catholic or Anglican or wherever? <laughs> Maybe or pick three historic, for <laughs> All the way back to the Church of Fathers. Yeah, of um, course. Of course. If, if people haven't spent time with N.T. Wright, I think they need to do that. Yeah. Uh, Walter Brueggemann. Uh, what I'm doing is I'm giving you a New Testament scholar and an Old Testament scholar, but they're more than just scholars. I, I know N.T. Wright a little bit. I know Walter Brueggemann pretty well, and they're both precious precious gifts to us and so if you if you haven't explored those two uh then you should and at some point you're gonna at some point at some point you're gonna have you don't have to do anything but at some point some of y'all gonna have to start reading Dostoevsky (laughs) Mm,
0: yeah I did a little in the past and I'm I'm tempted to have to maybe read a little bit more now so Brian, where can we send people to go deeper with all of your work, find out more about what you're oh, doing, you know, all that good
1: stuff? I'm, I'm, I have an unusual name, Brian Zond, Z-A-H-N-D. No one else has it. And you Google me, you'll find that on the Pastor Word of Life Church and at, the, at our church site, we have all my sermons. And you'll find me on Amazon if you're looking for books. And I have a blog site called... Uh BrianZon.com and you can go to YouTube and there's all my sermons. Of course, if you go to YouTube, you'll also find, you know, uh, the crank here and there that'll tell you that I'm a heretic, but I'm not.
0: (laughs) You'll see that for me too. So no, 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 that one not too shocking. (laughs) Amen. Well, well, Brian, thank you so much for taking the time today. I was blessed by your book. Highly encourage people to check it out. You can find a link in the description below. So thanks for your work. Thanks what you brought today. Uh, really appreciate it, friend. Thank you, Phil. Hey, friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just want to say thank you for joining us for this episode today. You can find links to everything that you may be looking for, hopefully everything you may be looking for, in the description below. From Patreon, to Brian's work, to Spiritual Direction, as well as our Christ-Centered Yoga Memberships, where we combine movement prayer, breath, meditation, and more to help us worship God in whom we live, move, and have our being. And of course, you can always send questions to connect at ruaspace.com. So friends, thanks for being with us here today. Until next time, grace and peace be with you.